This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. Hey, what's up? Not much. How are you? Good. Happy Friday. You too. You're in a different room. Yeah, I'm in my office area hmm. in the house. We're going to do a podcast, a podcast from each room in your house. All right. Yes. It's <laughs> so hopefully not too echoey. I need, I need to get, put a rug down in here. That doesn't sound too bad to me. I don't know. That's Tom's department. We'll fix it in post. <laughs> I got a standing desk. Yeah, what'd you get? I don't know what brand it's called. I'm more just amused that like, because I can't stand for long periods of time, but I got a standing desk. <laughs> so why did you do it then? I felt like all of the other desks were like two inches too short. Mm, yes. And so I figured they said it was a standard desk height and I believed them and maybe I was just imagining it, but I figured if I actually do feel like it's two inches too short, this way I can adjust it. Yeah, that's key. Plus it was the only desk that was, only desk that was big enough because I tend to have three computers open at a time. <laughs> I like the standing desks. We have them here at ThoughtBot, and they're nice. And I like them for both standing on occasion, but also just like you mentioned, like I actually just want this desk to be a tiny bit higher, and I don't want to move my chair. Like I like where my chair is. Yeah. And so you're just like, oh, there it is. It's, they're perfect. They're awesome. And I would love one at home, but I don't even have room for an actual desk. So I just, <laughs> I just do my work on the couch <laughs> until my children move out. Uh, <laughs> We're dealing with all sorts of like homeowner issues. Mm. It turns out that our, our sewer line is broken and uh, we have to replace it. That's a common thing. Yeah. And then also uh, our TV cannot connect to the Wi-Fi from the room that our router is in. So I'm wiring the house with Cat6. Oh, I thought you were going to go, uh, you know, you didn't go the Eero direction or whatever. The those... What? Eero? Is that... What is that? Google ripped it off a couple, like a year oh, is or two it, ago. Oh, just or, a Wi-Fi, a wireless repeater? Yeah, no, it's not just a repeater. It creates like a mesh network. It's not like having a repeater because mm. repeaters suck. But I think it's you're you're better off being wired anyway. So that's cool. So you're gonna poke holes in poke holes in your wall. You've been there for a week, and you're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's poke holes in the wall. Well, I'm having an electrician come out to install a higher amperage outlet in the garage anyway, and. Ah, yes. Running some Cat six cables a really easy job for them to do. So I figured, well, I have an electrician here. Why not? Yeah. I should do that as well. The last house, the condo I lived in was all wired for everything. Like it had mm -hmm. every room had two of these plates in it and every plate had two coax, a telephone and an RJ45, the ethernet plug. Yeah. And it all dumped down into this one container in the basement, but they never terminated anything or put any. So like I lived in that house for eight years knowing like, Hey, it would be really nice if I actually finished this wired network that I have <laughs> in my house and never bothered to do it. It's one of my great disappointments in myself. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this. Do you know what my uh, niece and nephew call an Ethernet cable? Wi-Fi cables. We've been, we've done this. Wi-Fi cable. Okay, we have done this bit. You're right. <laughs> yes, I've heard. Well, anyway, I've censored that as well. But yeah, I'm getting my house wired for Wi-Fi. There you go. That's the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Just yesterday, I had like a similar interaction with my son. Oh, I feel like. With my kids, it's so hard to wow them with technology because they're so used to it. You know, it's like they take everything for because it's been around their whole like the things that I have in my house. They've always had around their house because, you know, the oldest one is seven. So like there's not been any like significant technological advances in his lifetime that really we have in our house. But I recently got AirPods, which are, you know, the wireless earbuds or whatever, and they don't have any wire at all. They don't connect to anything. And he is amazed by them. He's like, but what? He's like, what can you listen to on these? Like, where's the button to listen to something? And I was like, no, you listen to it from the phone. He's like, but you don't plug it in. And I was like, oh, finally, there's something that you're like, what? And so I was like, yeah, put him in. Go ahead. Here, I'll play a song for you on my phone. And like, look, I control it from here. And he was amazed by that, which is interesting because he's not amazed by like wireless networking because he's never had to think about it. Right. It's always been there. Like he can play his games that he knows he's playing with people on the internet or whatever. He never couldn't do that wirelessly. So right, that was fun. Speaking of being in the future, did you uh, hear about the latest SpaceX ridiculous nonsense? Moonbase? So there was a moon base mentioned, yes, but that's not, that's not what I'm referring to, no. Okay, what is it now? 
So Elon Musk did like a keynote at a space flight conference that's going on in Australia last night or yesterday morning for Australian time. And they were giving an update on basically their Mars rocket. And one of the things they mentioned just at the end is, oh, yeah, by the way, we're also looking at using this for terrestrial travel. And they showed a whole <laughs> a whole demo simulation of it. They're advertising it as most places on Earth within 30 minutes, anywhere on Earth in less than an hour with a price per seat comparable to a full fare economy ticket for an airline. Yeah, OK. This is my Elon Musk thing where he's just constantly like, let me throw out this new goal for you to consider. No, again, that's why I referred to it as ridiculous nonsense. Yes. <laughs> it would be cool. I would love that. Strap yourself to a rocket to go to, I don't know, China. Every time I've been on a flight that was longer than 12 hours, I, I would complain to Tesla the whole, the whole time and be like, you know how fast we could get there if we had a rocket? <laughs> you should see the rocket I've built in Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a neat idea. And if it, you know, it pans out for them. Sure. I'll be excited. You'll be the first one to fly a terrestrial no. rocket. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll let them work the kinks out for a year or two first. We do have a Kerbal Space Program talk on the RubyConf program this yes, year. Yes, Nate's. Yep. I think my internal feedback on the talk was, this is Ruby and video games and rockets and space. I'm in. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> <laughs> I think that was how Nate and I originally met, actually, was he came up to me at a conference once and was like, hey, I hear you're into Kerbal Space Program. <laughs> I have never played this game, and I've heard so much about it that I'm, I'm excited to see the talk, and I feel like I'll understand, and maybe I, should, I can download it and try it out or something. Should we talk about this Bundler stuff? What's going on with Bundler? You know how for a while it would give you a warning to say, like, you're bundling with 1.15.3, but this, this, it's, you know, the gem this gem file is 1.15.4. Yeah. whatever it is they have updated that to also just tell you not only that but also like even if you're using the right version quote unquote right and right version that you're not using the most up-to-date version oh that's annoying which is kind of annoying except also now the version they recommend you to use is guess what a pre-release pre-release so by default they recommend that everybody install a pre-release version of bundler and as you might imagine <laughs> This decision has caused several conversations to happen. And they're not, the, the Bundler team doesn't really seem to be backing down. Do you have a link to one of these conversations? I would be curious to see. Yeah, let's see. We'll put a link in the show notes to some of these conversations, and I will send this one over to you. Bundler warns about latest version and suggests installing pre-release issue 6040. Is that? Yeah, that's probably it. Oh, this has been discussed in this closed issue. Yeah, so like the workaround is you can, if you care about this and you don't want to see it anymore, you can run this config for Bundler that says like silence this warning or whatever. And like there's in the thread, there's like good points from people who are like, I treat warnings as errors. When I see a warning, it must be squashed. And this is a warning. So I either need to like work around it by like telling everybody to, to do this Bundler config thing. Or, you know, the people on my team are going to misinterpret my, like, all warnings must be squashed and start using a pre-release version of Bundler in production, which I don't want them to do. And I can sympathize with the Bundler team's perspective of, like, A, we really need people to continually update Bundler because we do not want to support old versions of Bundler. And every time we get a bug report about an old version of Bundler, that costs us something, even if the answer is upgrade Bundler. And then also, we need people to test the pre-release versions of Bundler. But if you have people, if you recommend that people install this version of Bundler that is just called pre.whatever, right? Like 1.16.0.pre.2, like they might not know that that's not like you're, you're recommending they do that, right? So they're just going to yeah. like at that point, is it a pre-release anymore or is it just a release? I don't understand the difference. I mean, yeah, I, I agree that you should definitely in your not if, like if you were on a pre-release and there was a more recent pre-release, maybe. They did back down for the record. They changed the default config to not have that warning. When did that happen? Because mine is definitely telling me to do that. That happened 16 days ago. Interesting. So whenever I installed whatever one version of six, it's on the 116 stable branch. It meant it might not have been released. Oh, right. So it's not so one. So the latest actual stable release of Bundler is still telling people to do this. But yeah. that's cool. All right. Well, that's good. But if you update to 1.16.0.pre.whatever. 
I don't understand all the problems that Bundler's been trying to solve with these things that have really just kind of been annoying to users. Yeah. And so I don't want to say that they shouldn't be doing them, but I feel like, I don't know, some more advocacy around why they're doing them or some more publicity around it. Like, I don't even know, does Bundler have a blog? Am I supposed to just go into the issues and like trace through the whole conversation, the history of conversations? You know. And there's Bundler.io. Yeah, there's a blog on there. Have they been posting about these things? No, they posted about 115 and why it's so fast. It's mostly just release announcements. Right. So like some sort of thing. And I feel like I follow enough Rubyists on Twitter and stuff that if this stuff was making the gra- making the rounds, I would see it. One of the things I did see, and I don't follow DHH, but it got retweeted at some point and I saw it, is that as part of fallout from things like this happening around Bundler, these Bundler annoyances, the Basecamp has pulled their support for Ruby together. Yeah. Which is interesting. You know, I don't know that that's, I mean, that's a lot of money that they're pulling, which is unfortunate. The stated reasons, like in DHH's tweet of like the gems to gems RB or the gem, gem, gem file to gems RB. Right. That seems like a silly, like it's still going to work with gem file, right? I believe. That's up in the air. It will at least until Bundler 2 and whether or not it works after Bundler 2 is still up in the air. It just seems like a, I don't know, like... I really hate the such and such file convention, so I'm actually kind of happy that this is happening, and it makes perfect sense for new projects. I prefer gems.rb if we were making Bundler for the first time today. I think there's absolutely no good reason to change that established convention this late in a project's lifespan. It's just breaking. It's just a breaking change. Even even if it's not implemented as a breaking change. It adds additional user confusion. It adds more configuration you need to do if you are trying to, in an automated fashion, look at what gems people are using. Mm-hmm. It just adds more work for no real gain. That's true. Yes, and you've it, won me and over. And at worst, it breaks the entire ecosystem. Yes, this is the definition, by the way, when people say strong opinions loosely held. I had a strong opinion a second ago, but I was loosely <laughs> holding on to it. And Sean made an argument, and now I am abandoning that position. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do agree. Like, if it, like, I agree with you. The, the the file convention is terrible. We should, you know, I'm, like that's why I'm happy. Cargo, for example, does cargo.toml. Right. But yeah. Yeah, I guess that that's a fair point. That like anybody who needs to support both of these things, or if you're on it, you come on to a new project and you're like, is this use, like you open up the gem file? No, wait, this project uses gems.rb, that kind of thing, and that'll be a thing for a couple of years. You know, I don't know, and it does like what's the gain? I guess is that you know editors don't need to know to treat gem file as a Ruby file. I guess. Yeah. I wish also that Bundler used just something that was a markup format and not Ruby. Mm, why? If you're ever, because if you're ever actually using Ruby in your gem file, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're generating an inconsistent lock file. Yeah. I'm trying to think, like the client I'm on right now, I didn't do much in their gem file except for like, I had my, actually had my last day on my client project yesterday. So I was like looking for like, well, what can I do as a task that I can deliver today? And so when doing bundle installs, I saw lots of like pulling from GitHub and I was like, let me go look at everything that pulls from GitHub and see if I can get them on to like actual released versions. Right. And when I went in there, I did see there was one thing that was like, if this is Heroku, then install like PDFTK Heroku. And that is doing the inconsistent gemfile.lock thing. Yep. Right. And typically there's, there's stuff built into Bundler. So usually, I don't know about specifically if it's Heroku, but like, for example, if you want to do, if Windows install this thing, right, mm-hmm. there's, there's a platform. platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, it's nice to be able to maybe assign a variable or like loop through a, an array where the array is, you know, just populated with, you know, constant value and nothing dynamic, but like, maybe it's nice for that, but eh. mm-hmm. having access to an if statement makes it too easy to shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. I guess that's the promise of all those templating languages that didn't give you if, right? Right. <laughs> what were some of the, like, mustache? Is that, was that one without if or something? Anyway. I think they all give you if. They just didn't give you the ability to call arbitrary functions. Okay. All right. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I, that's what I had on my mind about gems, gem file, because I, was, I saw that warning and I was like, I had just, I had tried so hard to instill on the team the, like, deprecation warnings are errors squash them all and then yeah. this thing came up and i was like well okay this is the one you this is one you ignore let that yellow output just be yellow and it was annoying so i'm glad to see that they have reversed course on that in a future release anyway so that's cool yeah i don't know i never keep my bundler install up to date so i always just see like i used an older version than what was used to generate the gem file and so if it changed to something else i just never noticed yeah, I see that occasionally. Like, generally, it's not one thing that makes me do it. It's like, okay, I've seen this thing 20 times. So why don't I, like, while I'm thinking of it, just like, gem install bundler. Okay, good. Like, 
Yeah, Gem I should. Update bundler or whatever. There's not, there's not really any good reason for me not to, but... Well, apparently, other than that, I will always see a different error message, even if I do update. But then you do gem update bundler, and you actually skip one more ahead. <laughs> and you're like, ah, oh, now I've modified the gem file .lock. Like, <laughs> 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 I didn't want to do that. So I actually shouldn't say I've just opened it because I was about to open it before we got started. But I'm about to open a thousand line pull request to Diesel. Thousand lines? Yeah. Is this doing what we talked about? Oh, is this uh, removing the deprecations? No, oh. no. This is 913 additions, 64 deletions. <laughs> no, this is a new API for constructing full queries with raw SQL. Okay. So we have an existing API called SQL today, but there's two reasons that it sucks if you want to use it to construct your entire query. The first is that you have to tell us the SQL type of that query which can just be verbose and painful and, and, and error-prone. And then the second thing is we deserialize the results of that query by index, just like everything else in Diesel. And in part, that's because we have no way to represent the return type of a query other than with, as a tuple. And the only way to you know, refer to elements of a tuple is by index. And so that means that you have to then list out every column explicitly, mm -hmm. which is fine when Diesel does that for you, because that's what we do. If you look at a query that Diesel generates, you will see... We will never do users.star. We will always have listed out every every column explicitly. It's fine when Diesel does that for you, but it's annoying if you're writing the query yourself. So I wanted a new API that, number one, does not require you to state the type of the SQL query when you declare it. Mm -hmm. And then number two, deserializes the data by name rather than by index, which along with that comes all of the gotchas associated with doing that that exist in just about every other library. You know, if you have multiple tables with conflicting names, then they can overlap. And it means that code reuse is difficult for deserialization. If you want to, like, sometimes just deserialize it when it's from a single table, but sometimes you want to deserialize it from a join. And if it's in a join, then you need to alias every column. So, you know, there's all the gotchas associated with it. But for the general case of just I'm selecting from one table or from various sources where the names don't conflict, and I just want to write the whole query in raw SQL, deserializing by name made a lot more sense. Now, one of the things I wanted to do, first of all, the way we get the type is you tell us the type of the field in this new trait called queryable by name. Queryable is our main trait for deserializing stuff. And so you tell us what the quote unquote row type is. So typically it'll just be a tuple of like all of the Rust primitives that you would be using. And then queryable just kind of converts from that tuple into your struct. So queryable by name actually takes a row object. And the row object has a method on it called get, which takes a column name. And then the other thing you tell get is the SQL type of that individual field. So that's where we get the SQL type for deserialization. But what I want to have it do is I want to have row.get also optionally take a table name. Mm -hmm. So that way, if you did give us a table name, we wouldn't ever have the issue with conflicting names. Yep. But what I found, so it was easy to do that in MySQL. Postgres gives you the table OID rather than the name. So doable, mildly annoying. We're going to have to do an additional query to get the table name. I can stick that in a cache on a per connection level. So that gets amortized a little bit, but was not code I was looking forward to writing. But then I got to SQLite and I was excited because I was like, oh, cool. SQLite has exactly the functions I need and they're really easy to use. And this is going to be perfect. So I wrote the code for SQLite because actually the SQLite interface, I started implementing it for SQLite first because the SQLite interface was going to be the easiest one to implement it for. It literally just has a function that is, here is the prepared statement, here's an index, tell me the table it came from, tell me the column it came from. Anyways, so I wrote all the code and everything looked like it was going to work and then I got linker errors saying that these functions I was trying to call were not defined. And then I looked at the docs and, and it said, oh, by the way, these functions are only available if you compile SQLite with this C preprocessor macro defined, mm. which the Mac system SQLite doesn't. Right. So then I'm like, all right, well, maybe I'll figure out a way to only conditionally link against these. Because one of the things is this is not an API I expect the majority of people to use. This is our escape hatch API. So I certainly don't want to have like add the requirement, oh, and if you're using SQLite, you need to have compiled it with these flags, which even even if you're not using this, anyway. But I was gonna, yes, yeah, so I was gonna figure that out. But I punted it. I'm like, all right, let me let me just see if the homebrew SQLite compiles with these flags, and it does. There was no option, but I did look at the actual brew file, and it and it it passes the option to GCC to define that 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 preprocessor macro, and I could not for the life of me figure out how to get 
anything to ignore the system SQLite and, and link against that one instead. Mm. And so now I'm just imagining like, okay, so everybody who tries to use diesel CLI on a Mac is now going to be opening an issue. Right. And your response is going to be run brew link SQLite. <laughs> and then reinstall everything with these like yes. environment variables set. <laughs> if you brew link it, then like it force it, re it basically replaces. I imagine when you brew install SQLite, it says like it, it didn't link it because there's a system SQLite. And then if you brew link it, it'll be in your path before the... Would it be in your path before? I thought user local came after user lib anyway. I think if you follow what, what Homebrew wants you to do, user local wins out. And that's why they don't link it into user local because they don't like they don't want to overwrite a system like Vim or something like that. Huh. I should play with that. Maybe because I, I could like... That wouldn't be a fun thing to have to explain to people because you also might like... There's a reason why Homebrew doesn't do that, right? <laughs> right. No, no. But SQLite, luckily, you can statically link. Okay. So it's, you know, the sort of thing where I just, I would need to figure out, at least for me, the right flags without using brew link to get it to link against that instead of the system SQLite. If I ever did this, though, certainly it would have to, I would, I would want it to be like, there's some feature flag you enable that's like, use this capability of SQLite, and we don't try and call those functions if, and that feature is disabled by default, and we don't try and use that for SQLite, at least, unless that's there. You know, what sucks is that that's not there, really, the only thing I could do is, is, runtime error if you tried to pass a table name mm -hmm. but anyway for now at least for the initial pr i just scrapped that entirely and just went by column name alone or technically not by column name it's by field name at least for sqlite if you have provided an as yeah whatever the as was and if you have not provided an as it, the value is undefined oh great <laughs> but right now it's the column name and not much else i can do there how is that not a problem in SQLite in general, is it just because SQL like the SQLite libraries will deserialize that based on index position and not by column name? Like the fact no, that I mean, the most name is undefined. Go by column name. Like you you just said this the field is undefined by default, right? Well, undefined, not like undefined as in undefined behavior, so technically it can overwrite your hard drive undefined. Like right. undefined just as in they don't have a documented value and oh, they just okay. say this yeah, you know, it could change between versions. Okay. All right. So like theoretically, you know, the only the only conceivable thing I could imagine them changing it to would be table name dot column name. Right. Mm -hmm. But I've been working on that and like figuring out all the different APIs for this has been a pain in the ass. And of course, the MySQL API was the weirdest. <laughs> Once again, the winner. I just, you know, the thing I appreciate about SQLite is in their documentation. So if you go look at, hold on, let me send you, a, let me send you a link to this function. Because an important thing is when something returns a pointer to you, you need to know, you know, it's important for you to know whether you're now responsible for this pointer or not and what you can do with it. And the documentation here is great. Like the returned string pointer is valid until until one of these conditions occurs. So first of all, the fact that it says it's valid until something else happens just by, you know, by default tells you, OK, so this is this is not something I'm responsible for. I should not mutate or try and free it or anything like that. Contrast that with this. We'll put a link to these both of these links that Sean just sent me in the show notes. But it's, yeah, so it's the, first, yeah, the first so, one was documentation on column names and a result set from the SQLite C interface, which you know had a good deal of detail. And then the next one you sent me is the documentation for MySQL fetch fields, which is the equivalent of what we were just reading for the SQLite documentation. And <laughs> there are thirty words on this page, if that. <laughs> yeah. All it says is it returns an array <laughs> of MySQL field structures. Right. And, and so in C, it's very important to know, am I responsible for this? Do I need to free it? How long is this array valid for? Mm -hmm. And it says none of those things. And, and the code example that gives actually does involve an object that you are responsible for and have to free yourself, which isn't shown in their code example. So that's fun. <laughs> yeah. So you can comment on their documentation right here, Sean. <laughs> Just log in and leave a comment. <laughs> Oh, because comments on documentation was a great <laughs> idea, as PHP showed us. I'm actually curious what PQF name is the name of the function. Yeah, okay, so even Postgres, which is nowhere near as thorough as, as SQLite in, the, in their documentation, at least for the, the C API, but the Postgres API for this returns the column name associated with the given column number. Column number start at zero. The caller should not free the result directly. It will be freed when the associated PG result handle is passed to PQ clear. Mm-hmm. So they answered the question you want an answer, <laughs> or yeah. an important question if you intend to use any of this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those, every time I see a pointer, there are certain questions that need to be answered in C. Mm-hmm.
MySQL never answers them. <laughs> All right, so you're going to land this thousand line pull request, and then you're going to be close to 1.0. I saw some things. You're getting ready for 1.0. Yeah, we announced we're joining the Rust impl period. So I, I read this and I don't quite understand it. Is the idea basically like enough talking about this stuff? Let's implement it all. Yeah, it, it's basically a combination of two things. First is basically a statement of we're not accepting any more RFCs this year. Mm -hmm. More or less. It's not actually shutting it down, but but more or less like certainly anything substantial will get postponed until next year. And then the second is a call to action and a bunch of new communication channels and tooling to help new contributors find work and basically just a general community call to action of, hey, yeah, let's implement all this stuff. Cool. So there's a bunch of new Slack rooms. There's some websites where you can just basically find open issues that are easy to get started with. So Diesel announced that that we're joining the impl period and everything in the impl period has specific goals. It's one of the things that you have to do as part of forming a working group is set out what your goals for the impl period are. And Diesel's goal is to release 1.0. So I, we announced our official tentative release date of November 23rd. Mm -hmm. And then I think this is the only place I've ever publicly mentioned, other than the podcast, but at least in, in terms of like official diesel channels. I don't think I'd ever publicly mentioned our plans for 0 0.99 before, which mm -hmm. for any listeners who haven't heard me talk about before, basically we're going to release 0 0.99 as what is essentially a beta for 1.0. But then there's also going to be one major difference between those two versions. 0.99 will include a bunch of deprecated stuff, both stuff that was deprecated in prior releases and also a bunch of new deprecations that are going to happen in that version. And then 1.0 is going to have no deprecated code whatsoever. So going from 0.16 to 0.99 should be basically painless, but going from 0.99 to 1.0 might involve a decent bit of work. So we're going to be supporting 0.99 for bug fixes, probably as long as it is convenient and I see a non-zero number of downloads. Awesome. Congratulations. Well, in advance, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not there yet. We got a lot of work to do. And I would like to release 099 before November 1st. So there's a lot of work to do between now and then. If nothing else, at least the documentation stuff isn't a blocker for 099. That's the main blocker for 1.0 is documentation work. Cool. You said something at the beginning of this that I wanted to circle back to because it's something I've been thinking about. Okay. And it's tangentially related because you talked about the diff stats for this pull request. Yeah. And so one of my favorite things to do as I wind down work on each project is to look into the contributors and be like, what are my stats on this project? And time and time again, what I find is that for the most part, I'm likely to have as much green as red, yeah. right? And that it's balanced, given if the project is already established, right? If you're writing the project, you're going to have a lot more green. But you're also going to have a lot of red as you backtrack. But I think you're much more likely to have more green. Or if you're like maintaining an open source gem and you're writing documentation comments, you're going to get a ton of green from that. Right. And I like that. If you look at my clearance stats, I, I'm still pretty good. But I, like, I've written a lot of documentation, so I have a lot more green there. But I feel like for if you come onto an established project and you're looking at an established project and you're like, oh, there's some code quality concerns here and things like that. I feel like that's about the right thing to look for is overall, are you, how much more code are you removing than you're adding? Yeah. And I haven't really tried to formulate using this as a metric, but I think it's a good one to try and think of is like, look at your stats on a project. If you weren't, if you came on like mid project, hopefully you have more red than you have green kind of thing. And that's not to say like a lot of people immediately see like, well, how could I be deleting things if I'm adding features, right? How could, right. how does that work? And it's like you just find a way because you're constantly changing the way the whole system works. You're not just adding code to add new features. So I don't know. Did you do you find that as well on, on work that you're doing that's not like brand new work that like for the most part your plus and minus is around the same or maybe even hopefully your minus is ahead kind of thing? Yeah, even on diesel, like this is the first time I've had a pull request that was this green heavy in a while. One of the things I've been noticing recently is that there are a lot of times where I like I'm writing a decent ish size pull request, you know, like, let's say plus 250 minus 300, something like that. I've had a lot of cases recently where I'm technically adding more than I'm deleting. And that's only because I added a bunch of new test cases to show the case that I'm fixing. Yeah, that's what on this project that I was on, Herman was on with on it with me. And like, it was the last day and I was looking at the stats and I was like, I think I had deleted like 700 more lines than I had added or something like that. And he was like, he had like added 80 more lines than he had removed. And he was like, I know I'm already on it. Like I got it. And he was just like, to, he 
it's both of us had this situation where like a lot of what we added is actually just like oh there was missing test coverage here like i changed one line yeah. in this function and i'm actually gonna get a bunch of green here because i'm gonna write like five new test cases because it was yeah. missing some coverage but you know hey you gotta i like that like we both it was funny because it was clear we both knew what had to be done <laughs> it was like you need to find 90 <laughs> you need to find 90 lines to delete today <laughs> i don't know if he did yeah. i never followed up <laughs> the other one with open source is, is documentation, especially right now, since yep. we're trying to move towards no undocumented items. Usually it'll be if I'm fixing a bug or touching some code for some reason, I notice the doc comment on it is either missing or out of date. You know, I'll go in and add it. And if I'm and if I'm expanding it, I'll usually then add one of the things that Rust does is if you have code examples in your documentation, it runs those as tests. Mm hmm. So a lot of times, even if there is an existing integration test that this example would be redundant with, I'll usually add a doc test. And sometimes I'll delete the integration test when I do that. Sometimes I won't. Right, because the idea being you definitely want your documentation to be correct. Yes. Also, even if I just go so far as to, if I were making a change in diesel, where even if I was just moving a test from our integration test suite to a documentation test, that would always be net green. Because documentation tests are always compiled basically as single file applications. So there's a lot more redundant setup I have to do in documentation yeah. tests. Rust does have a macro you can call it basically is here's a path to a file. Include the source code of that file here as if it were just in line. Mm -hmm. So not a module, but actually just, you know, as if the code was copy pasted. And we have a lot of our common setup there. But even even so, there is at minimum probably a half dozen more lines that I'll need in a documentation test than I will in an integration test. And typically it's closer to 30. Yeah. Yeah. I was mentioning, I tweeted out, I don't, did you see the tweet I sent uh, I this did. afternoon? I saw it where you have like, what do you call it? Not comments, but the statements there that say like, yeah, if CFG adders. Yeah. CFG. And so like, you're like, if it's Postgres, then use this as like for part of the example. If it's not, then use, you know, use the MySQL yeah. compliant version or whatever. And so for those who have never written Rust, one of the things you can do with documentation examples is you can put a pound sign in front of a line. Now, pound in Rust is not a comment like it is in Ruby. It actually is a syntax error in normal Rust. But in a documentation example, it means run this line, but hide it from the generated documentation when the markdown gets rendered. So what I have here is like, I'm basically trying to say, if it's Postgres, do this with Postgres syntax. If it's otherwise, do it with the ANSI syntax. But like with semicolons and additional variable assignments in weird places, so it looks like it's a single expression in the rendered output. <laughs> yeah, so documentation, like I said, definitely gonna, gonna add to your green. And so it's hard on things where you're writing a lot of documentation. But like, I just think it's, it's, not, it's not an anti-pattern to have more green than red. It's just something to just keep an eye on look at and like look at on a project who has like massively outweighing green contributions and red contributions and see if there's a way a reason for that is it that they wrote a lot of the original code and so you know somebody took that on or so, so here's a question for you though then what is, so if you did write the original code what is a good ratio what's a reasonable ratio see i don't have i don't know because i don't do enough of that i don't do enough of like i started from scratch i just have a lot of these projects that i come into in the middle and have sort of noticed a trend where it's like I do a lot of negative type things. And in some project, there was one project in particular that was like, <laughs> it became a competition to who could get like the most deleted lines and the highest ratio, things like that. But there was one yeah. project in particular that got a little out of hand there <laughs> in a good way. I think in general, I think for established projects, 50-50 about, seems about right. And, and I don't think that there's a, a smell to having way more deleted than added. Right. I think that's right. Good. I think the other way is a potential like, are we doing enough in the code that we're adding to limit complexity and limit just overall bloat of the code kind of thing? Yeah. The answer to that might be like, yeah, it's totally fine. But it, it's one of the few stats that, that GitHub can easily give you that I think bears some sort of watching over the long term. Sure, as long as you don't, because if you start reading too much into it, then you start like resisting refactoring yes. because pulling a line out into a separate method adds three lines. Right. Don't do what I was joking around about earlier, where I was like, "You got to find ninety lines to delete." Like, don't don't do that. But just use, use it as ternaries like a... everywhere, postfix conditionals, <laughs> all the tricks. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, like, when I tell people how I write Ruby, which is like I'm much more explicit. I don't use postfix conditionals. I don't use ternaries. I don't use let. I don't use before. I don't use things like that in my specs. So I'm taking code that's written oftentimes in that quote unquote concise way, 
writing it in the manner that I prefer and is also I consider to be better factored and coming out negative. Yeah. And I think that surprises a lot of people when they first start doing things like that. So anyway. Yeah. Just for frame of reference, my ratio for diesel is just over 1.5 to 1. Okay. And that's more or less, I actually expected it to be closer to neutral. Like if I started zooming in on periods after, let's say the first year, it goes down a little bit, it goes down to like 1.3, 1.25 to one, but it's still generally pretty high. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Interestingly, just looking at some of the other top contributors to diesel, they all have somewhat similar ratios as well, about 1.5 to one. I have, so I'm looking at scenic I have 1.6 added for every one removed. And I wrote a large chunk of the documentation. So I think that's mostly what that is. And yeah, for the most part, Scenic is Caleb and I, and then some small contributions from people. So that's most of Scenic. And I think Caleb's, oh, he has a lot more added. I think he had, he had a lot of the, he had most of the early commits looking at this graph. So he had a lot of the original green and I had a lot of the like refactoring towards 1.0 kind of of things. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Should we wrap up and then discuss Star Trek after the after sure. the notes? You know, we don't want to spoil Star Trek. Okay. Show notes for so the should sep- we mention, hold oh, on, wait, before, wait, wait, we, before okay. we do the wrap up. Okay. If you want to hear us talk about Star Trek, there will be spoilers. Stick around after the uh, show notes. Yeah, specifically the new Star Trek, which is available on streaming from CBS. What's it called? <laughs> Discovery? Star, Star, Star Trek, Trek Discovery. Discovery. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 127. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. All right. Star Trek Discovery. So you asked me yesterday when we were going to, before we were recording, you were like, have you seen Star Trek? And I admitted that I have never seen a single Star Trek of any kind ever a movie a television show i didn't know that there was a new television show i knew that there were two captains in the old television show but and i knew one of them was william shatner but i didn't know which one well there were two captains in two (laughs) different shows okay sure but i didn't know what i knew one of them was william shatner but i have no idea which i knew one of them was named picard and eventually remembered that the other one was kirk so i know nothing about star trek that's just to say that's my position on like i have no star trek history i'm watching this show as a star trek newbie and, you know, I don't want to make this a review of this of the way CBS has decided to make you get this show, which is to use their streaming thing that you have to pay for. Oh, I mean, I think there's some stuff to say about that. <laughs> OK, if you want, that was that was a little bit. I, I just thought I had to stream it because I missed it live. And you were like, no, 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 right. it's only available on this streaming thing. And I was like, oh, I'm going to download this. Like if I get into the show, I'm not going to be watching it through this streaming thing because uh, right off the bat, I'm trying to sign up for it on the Apple TV. And it's like it gives me two options. It's like with commercials. Five ninety nine, without commercials, nine ninety nine, and then the without commercials says like, live TV will have commercials if you're watching live TV <laughs> through the app, and then also some some programs will have promotional interruptions. What do you think <laughs> a commercial is? <laughs> a promo- no, let's say it's not it's not a commercial if it's promoting Young Sheldon. <laughs> the show that nobody asked for. I already have a hard enough time paying. HBO $15 a month and having to sit through the like the two minutes of advertising before every show You can always skip that though, right? At least it's skippable, but none of the commercials I paid the five ninety nine one because there's a one-week trial and so ultimately I might be able to get it for free But and I don't mean to be like I don't mean to sound cheap I just you know, there's so many of these services you have to pick and choose which ones you're no, gonna subscribe and, to and So on HBO actually I've been wondering because you know, how, do you ever watch John Oliver? Sometimes so you know how he you occasionally will do a bit where he's basically just flaunting, look how much HBO money we have? Yes. I've always wondered, like, why on earth does he have that budget? There's no way that his show draws enough subscribers to be worth them giving him that much money. And then I realized if that show weren't around, we would be canceling our HBO subscription in between seasons of Game of Thrones. I usually do cancel. Like, I there's a few shows that I watch all around the same time, like Insecure, Game of Thrones things like that but i we haven't been doing much back catalog but this time we're sticking around for like my wife has started to get into game of thrones so we start we started watching again from the beginning that kind of thing yeah but this cbs thing is not gonna hold its weight so i don't i'm gonna have to find another way to get this show or they're gonna have to put it on actual television yeah and that's the thing i'm worried about so for context i'm a huge star trek fan okay actually i guess probably people who are self-described huge star trek fans would probably call me like 
a moderate fan. I don't know. I don't go to conventions or anything like that, but <laughs> do you have an outfit? No. Okay. So I actually do like typically, usually when I'm going to bed, I'll usually watch an episode of one of the Star Treks before in bed just because it's a nice show. It's a nice relaxing show. I like to have just, I, I tend to like the TV on my fall asleep and it's one of my all time favorite shows. And I absolutely despised the new, the JJ Abrams movies, not like as movies, they were fine sci-fi movies, mm-hmm. but they kind of lost everything that makes Star Trek, Star Trek, which is generally it's slower. It's more philosophical. The characters tend to have a lot of conversations that most TV shows just wouldn't make time for. In a lot of ways, I it like one way of put it is it almost has more in common with British television than it does with US television. Okay. And so I was very, very skeptical of this show. I'm still skeptical of the show, but I was very skeptical of it because I just expected it to be, you know, the new Star Trek movies, the TV show, generic sci-fi action show that happened to have some props that look like they're from the, the old shows. One of the things that's been characteristic of Star Trek shows just across all of them, none of them are good in the first season. <laughs> Most of them are bad in the second season as well. It's you. It, almost none of the shows got good until their third you season. You are not making me want to watch any of these. <laughs> well, no, so when I tell people if I try to get them to watch TNG, I'll tell them watch the pilot. TNG short for the next generation. Mm-hmm. I'll tell them watch the pilot and then go right to season three. Okay. So I'm I'm a little worried though that the show's not gonna have time to find its audience and find its footing. Because it's going to not get renewed because they're basically tying its success to the success of their new streaming platform. And I don't think most people are going to pay $6 a month for this one show. You don't think that the, if that happens, they would just bail out and put it on television? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if they would do that or not. That's a, I mean, that, that is a question. But you know, if, if basically it doesn't draw the numbers that they need it to, it's, I guess it just comes down to are the execs going to see that as a failure of their model or as a failure of the show? I guess so. I was going to say they could look at like critical acclaim as a measure for that, but like that didn't help like arrested development. Right. <laughs> or other shows that were highly critically acclaimed, but not well watched. I mean, if nothing else, Netflix co-owns the rights to it. And Netflix is, a, is very much like a, they basically give every show three seasons to find its audience. Hmm. So eventually it's going to make its way to Netflix if they co I mean, I imagine if they co-own the rights, they have a right to show it at some point. Yeah. Once it fi- once the season finishes airing, it will be on Netflix. Oh, well, I can wait that long. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what did you what did you actually think as a you know Star Trek fan? What did, I'm curious what you thought of the of the first two episodes. OK, well, so try to think where to start. Cause I like I liked the first episode better than the second episode. See, I thought they were the same episode. I was like, this is one episode. They should have just aired it as one hour and 10 minute long episode. Well, so they aired one of them on TV. Ah, okay. So that was the thing. They had a, they, they released them both at the same time. They aired one on TV and then had the second one as the immediate gratif- instant gratification for sign okay. up on our streaming service to get the rest. Because it did just seem like it was a good hour long. I've set up exact. Now I've set this world up for you. So yeah, definitely that's the first part of it is like it was the prequel to the show. Yes. Which is fine. It's a pilot. That's what pilots generally are. Mm-hmm. You know, the second episode was a little bit too action-y for me, but that's fine. The Klingons are a recurring race that have been around since the original series. I thought they were good guys in the original series. No, so they were they were a race that the Federation was at war with in the original series. They were allies in the next generation, but uh, there were various episodes where there were conflicts internally in the Klingon Empire that caused tensions. Okay, because I, I distinctly remember there being a Klingon on the ship at some point in Star yep, Trek on, episodes that I've on seen. TNG. Okay. I'm thinking of, Cap- of uh, Lieutenant Worf. Okay, sure. <laughs> anyway, they look very different. I don't mind the, the look. I actually like what they did with the Klingons. The hyper-religious take on them is, is interesting and kind of fits with how they've done that race in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm mad they killed off the captain whose name I don't remember. Yeah, I was. I could see that coming, and I, but I was like, oh, I like, I immediately had an attachment to her, and I was like, I like her. And I like the other one too. Is her name is is it Michael? Is yeah, that what I'm here? Okay. Yes. So so yeah, I like her too, but I liked them for different reasons and I'm sad that, you know, she's already done after. Well, and then just they had the preview. It's like, "Oh, and we're we're getting her replaced with a white guy who like I'm sure will be fine, but I was I was really excited to just, you know, Star Trek's always been a very forward-thinking show in that regard." Mm-hmm. And I feel like I got kind of the vibe that it might have been a move that they did because they saw the internet getting outraged in the same way that they did over the Ghostbusters remake. I don't know. I all or I reboot, can say whatever. all I can say is that I immediately kind of appreciated what what they were doing. Of like, okay, yes. we have two women at the front of the show. 
yes cool, cool. i mean like it's fine. They didn't like make a big deal out of it. It was just like this is what it right, is. It was just a thing, isn't and it was this, good. Isn't this normal? And you're like, yeah, sure, cool, let's go. I wanted it to stay that way. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I'm, I was a little disappointed with that. I also liked the like Klingon thing. I don't have any history with the Klingons, <laughs> sure, <laughs> but I got them as like the bad guy kind of thing. But also like liked the way that Michael was wrestling with the like, no, no, we don't have time to like for diplomacy here or for like to do our typical thing of like wait until they react and then we react like we have to strike and there's like this this tension between like but that isn't what we do we come in peace we're not warriors we're explorers right. and like that whole bit i got that immediately and was like okay cool like it's not just like good guys v bad guys that's not just the whole gonna be the whole thing i hope anyway right so a lot of people i think are either going to be mad about that or are mad I actually haven't looked too much at like reviews but there was a rule basically in the old show that was called the Roddenberry rule of basically just no major conflicts between the ranks of Starfleet mm -hmm. because they wanted to generally keep the tone of the show quite hopeful and portray Starfleet as a utopian-esque society. Okay. So there were always, there were places where there were moral gray areas. For example, in TNG, there was a episode in, in the final season where there's a race called the Cardassians who there's a <laughs> recent... The Kardashians? Kardashians. <laughs> this is before the Car This was in the 80s. Okay, yeah. 90s, actually, this episode. But And they have a new and rather tenuous treaty with the Federation, and they're a race sort of known for war crimes. Anyway, there's a planet that is inhabited by a Native American tribe that is basically located now after this treaty on the Cardassian side of the border. Mm-hmm. And so the predominantly white crew is tasked with removing this colony of Native Americans from their new home. And that's one of the cases where, like, there was more conflict between the ranks than, than most other episodes and get and starts to get into, you know, the moral gray areas of, the, of, of that organization. But, like, that's sort of still very a very – it was still generally very low-key and wasn't, it wasn't like – people were threatening mutiny type, right. of, type of stuff. I did find that a little jarring that she went straight from like, <laughs> she's not listening to me to mutiny. Yeah. I thought that was a little jarring, but they kind of explained that with her background as like a Vulcan being raised by that Vulcan guy. Yeah. He's a, well, not a major character. He's the father of Spock. Ah, he did, he did appear very Spocky, but I thought that might be, you know, my, I don't know, think every, everybody that's a Vulcan is Spock to me because... You know, I mean, I that's kind of true, but, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's who that character is. Okay. I feel like this show in general can fill the role that I can't remember the name of the show. It was on, it was made in like the seventies, but then was remade. It has Battlestar Galactica. Yes. I feel like this can fill my Battlestar Galactica role, which is a show I enjoyed, but didn't love. And I feel like this could, you know, fill that same kind of area in my TV watching zone. So, you know, it's interesting. So the Star Trek series that this is like kind of most comparable to, I think, is probably Deep Space Nine, mm -hmm. which aired in the 90s. It aired after TNG. It was by the same executive. All of the 90s Star Trek was done by the producer who took over TNG kind of after Roddenberry stepped down, mm -hmm. named Rick Berman. And Deep Space Nine, people have tend to have mixed opinions of because it was the darkest of the Star Treks that had aired at that point. And one of the one of the main producers on it was the guy who went on to go make the Battlestar Galactic remake. And he basically took all the things he learned from Deep Space Nine to make Battlestar Galactica be good until it sucked. <laughs> it did get weird at the end there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of problems with that. Like, that's the thing. I had a lot of problems with that show, but still, by and large, enjoyed it. Yeah. So, like, I can see this filling. It's the same kind of genre. It's the same... I get a lot of the same vibes early on, like who are the good guys, who are the bad guys kind of thing a little bit, like where it's clear right now, good guys are Starfleet, bad guys are Klingons, but like there's a hint that like that's going to get a little more complicated perhaps. Yes, hopefully. And well, hopefully it's not just about the Klingons. Right. Well, and then there's scenes of like, I don't know if other Star Treks have done this where it seems like they're talking to some guy who's just like down on a planet and he's like what the hell are all you people up in your spaceships doing? Like, do you ever, do you ever think of what the impact to people down us down here is? At least that's what I got from one of the preview scenes or whatever. Sure. So there's going to be some conflict there and things like that. But yeah. I don't know. I am intrigued. I'm not like super excited about it, but I'm intrigued and I will watch. How, how often are they going to come out? Every week or so? Every Sunday, yeah. Every Sunday. So yeah, I should be able to have one more on my free trial and then I will probably 
probably not continue to pay $6 a month for it, but we'll watch it when it comes out on Netflix or when it falls off the truck in front of my house. Yeah. One of the two. I mean, I'm really intrigued as well because I'm relatively convinced if nothing else, it's going to be a good sci-fi show, but I would really like a new show to, to properly scratch my Star Trek itch. <laughs> All right. Cool. Anything else about Star Trek? Star Trek is really good. Y'all should okay. go watch Star Trek. We should watch specifically I mean, this I, Star Trek or any Star Trek. No, show no. Right? I mean, why don't you TNG, rank? Why don't you rank the Star Treks for us? TV shows, particularly, not the movies. Well, so first of all, Star Trek Eight: First Contact, not only like easily the best Star Trek movie, but one of the best sci-fi movies of all time. Okay, I'll file it away. So it's the only good Star Trek movie of the TNG era. So TNG is definitely number one, specifically seasons four through six. Okay. I actually really liked Voyager, which I know a lot of people are going to are going to dislike me for saying that. But I don't know. It was around when I was of the age to be really getting into it. And I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets too much flack. Deep Space Nine, original series, Enterprise. That would be my order. OK. And then we'll see where Discovery slots in. We'll see where Discovery slots we'll in. We'll reserve judgment. OK. All right. Cool. Thanks for making me watch it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for watching it so I can nerd about it. Well, Star it was funny. Like my wife, I, my wife wasn't home, so I started watching it, but she came home like two minutes into the show, and I was like, I'm watching this. Do you want to watch it? And she was like, Star Trek. And I was like, just, I have to watch it because Sean wants me to watch it, and like, I don't have anything else to do, so why not? And so she was like, all right, fine, I'll watch it. And then we, en- we ended the first episode, and I was like, I'm going to watch the second episode because I got to get through these before the show tomorrow. She was like, I'm going to go to bed. And then she watched the whole second episode. So, like, you know, she's into the same, and she got the same, like, Battlestar Galactica kind of, like, this is, I mean, maybe it's because it's a show about space. <laughs> sure. But anyway. I don't know. It has, a, it has a weird, like, it has a weird place for me. Not to the point where I'm going to be ravagely angry if this doesn't turn out to be a, what I consider to be a Star Trek show. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm fine if it's just a good sci-fi show that has Star Trek in the name. But for me, at least, some of the only memories I have with my dad from before he got sick was watching Star Trek together. So it's sort of has a very special place in my heart. Oh, that's nice. So I hope it works out then. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, when Ruby gets a little older, you can show her all the different Star Treks as well. It'd be like a family tradition. And she'll be like, why is my dad really so into the show from the 80s? <laughs> well, that's what I remember. I, my memories of Star Trek, my only memories of Star Trek are my dad watching Star Trek and me being like, isn't there football on? Like, can we, or can we do, can, <laughs> is there, can I play video games instead? That kind of thing. Well, I mean, I, so part of why I hated the Abrams movies so much, I don't know if you remember the ads from when they were airing, but the main the main slogan they used was, this is not your dad's Star Trek. Aww. And you were like, oh, what's wrong with my dad's Star Trek? <laughs> exactly. And, and it's just funny when you have that opposite. And like, like it was probably perfect for, for you. Except and I... for me, it was just like, that very specifically angered me. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. All right. I got to go. I got a meeting to yeah, get no to. Yeah, no worries. All right. Talk to you later. Later.